0: Guys, he's been here before. We, uh, have, we call him friend now, I think. Um, will you guys give a great warm welcome to Jim Wallace?
1: Thanks, Thank you, Thank you, Okay, You people who are wearing shorts today, okay? OK? You guys wear shorts when it's 40 degrees, OK? It isn't really not that impressive to me. If it's 60 degrees at my house, we have a fire burning in the fireplace, OK? we don't understand cold in Southern California. Okay, but great weather though. It's 40 degrees warmer this weekend than the last time I was with you guys. 40 degrees, okay, is that crazy? All right, now you guys already know who I am. I won't kind of uh, bury this this thing in my my story, but for those of you who don't know, I work in Los Angeles County and I work cold cases, but most of my career, toward the end at least, was working unsolved murders, a lot of crime scenes. So we set this crime scene up here for you, okay? And so a lot of what we're going to do, we've always done in the context of criminal investigations, because that's what I do. And that's what I was doing when I first looked at Scripture, and I did not think that the Bible was reliable. I didn't think it contained truth. And I wanted to know, could I apply my expertise to the words of Scripture, to the pages of Scripture, to determine if it was true. And that's how I became a Christian at 35, So we're going to try to do that again today. Now, I've introduced my son D. Beal before when I was here, but I want to kind of spin it a new way. When he first started working in this job five years ago, I right away, within a year of him being on the job, I told my wife, I think he's got this kind of like a sixth sense about it. He seems so well-suited, like it fits him to do this, even more than I felt like it fit me. But I remembered then afterwards that my dad said the same thing about me when I was on the job about a year and a half. And certainly by the time I was working investigations, he said, Oh, this job is so well suited for you. But I realized that it's not that it's well suited for us, it's that that kid listened to my stories his entire life. And he had a very well-rounded view of law enforcement. He knew the good things about it. He knew the bad things about it. He knew that he had a reasonable expectation because I had been talking to him about it his whole life. The same thing my dad did with me my entire life. So what happened here was simply that we were conditioned to see the good stuff and the bad stuff, and we had a reasonable expectation So what I wanna help you guys do today is have the same kind of reasonable expectation about your scripture. Yes, there are challenges that people level against our Bible. And there are claims they make. And I wonder if you even know what those claims are. Your students are gonna know what they are as soon as they enter into university, because someone in a university setting is gonna explain them to them. And that's why uh, last year when I was approached, have you guys seen God's Not Dead, the first movie, God's Not Dead? Then they made a second movie, just came out three weeks ago, God's Not Dead 2. So they came to me and they asked me, would, would you be willing to do a scene in this movie, just making a case during a jury trial in which a, a teacher is being accused of having used the name of Jesus in public high school in a history lesson. And I think this movie is about a half a click ahead of where we are as a culture. So the question was, would you be willing to come and do a scene in this movie? to make a case for the historicity of Jesus. And I was happy to do it. Why? Because I felt like most of us as Christians don't know how to defend the historicity of Jesus. We don't know how to defend what we believe about the Bible. But we ought to be able to do it, and that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna take some time to defend what we believe in light of and in spite of the objections that are leveled against it. Now we're gonna do a chapter from this book. We don't have any books here, but I'm going to send you a bunch of materials afterwards, so just get ready, here we go. Uh, This came out about two days ago. This is the list at the American Library Association. They get a list, they keep a list every day, every uh, week they update it, of the top books that people complain about and want removed from libraries and public schools. And you can see, Number two on this list is Fifty Shades of Grey, right? And it even tells you the reasons people give for wanting to remove a book from a public library or a school. This is from just a couple of days ago, and you'll notice that on this list, number six is the Bible. And people want it removed from public libraries and removed from public schools. Why? Religious viewpoint. So if you don't think that our sensibilities as Christians, our worldview is under assault. You're just not paying attention. And I wanna help you by addressing one major uh, claim against the Bible this morning, okay? So let's get after it. I think it was worded pretty nicely in this email I got some time ago. This is from 2013. An email that said, hi, my name is John Singer, I'm a believer, but I've been wrestling with certain matters of faith. Recently, I've been thinking about the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. I truly do believe the Bible to be the Word of God, but I want to know exactly how I'm supposed to feel about what that means. For example, we know that there are scribal errors and minor additions that have been made, understanding that none of these affect the truth of the message, but how do I view these things? Also, how do I know that other additions weren't also made? As well, I think one thing I wrestled with is Matthew 5:18, where Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Describable errors or their minor additions take away from the truth of Jesus' statement here about the word. Anyway, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. I feel like I haven't found very good resources on the matter recently. What in the world is he talking about? He, he's, he seems to be saying that he's aware of scribal errors, errors made by scribes who were copying the original manuscripts. And that your Bible contains errors and variations. And how are we supposed to see that if we're gonna to continue to call this the inerrant word of God? But it's got scribal variations and errors in it? That's the objection. Now, I want to give it to you more robustly by somebody who has great influence in our culture. His name is Bart Ehrman. And Bart was a guy who was raised in the church, raised as a Christian, went to Sunday school, went to youth group. He was very active in his youth group, as a matter of fact, and then came up and went to Moody Bible Institute where he first started studying, getting prepared really for a life in ministry. Here's what he says. He's written a book. Let's back up for a second. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. There, that's his book. Jesus interrupted. Look at the subtitle. Revealing the hidden contradictions in the Bible and why we don't know about them. So Bart has a particular view, doesn't he? Uh, his name is Bart Ehrman, and he is the, right now the distinguished professor of religious studies. He leads the Bible department at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Nobody writes more about Christian scripture right now at a popular level than Bart Ehrman. He also writes at an academic level, okay? But his popular level books have sold millions of copies. He's having a great influence. And if you were to take his class as a student, as a freshman, you would see in the catalog it looks like a class on, on Bible, which it is. But in that class on Bible, he will pretty much strip you of any confidence you have in Scripture. Because although he, he came up in the church and he went to Moody Bible Institute, and from there he got his master's at Wheaton, two Christian institutions. And then he went to Princeton for his PhD and studied underneath one of the best Bible scholars of the 20th century, a guy named Bruce Metzger. He is now, as he would describe, an atheistic leaning agnostic. He's an atheist. So the question becomes, how did he get there? How did he get from Christian to atheist through Christian universities? Well, he tells you how. When he got to Moody, he was shaken by what nobody talked about in his church or in his youth group. That's why we need to be talking about this stuff in church and in youth group. He discovered for the first time that we did not have the original copies of the Gospels. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But we do not have the originals of the Gospel of Mark, or Matthew, or Luke, or John, or any New Testament document. We don't have the originals. Well, why don't we? Do you know what they were writing on, folks? (laughs) Okay, that stuff was not meant to last, okay? I mean, you could have put that stuff under plexiglass. It would still deteriorate. And so by the time it got handled, you're making a copy of the original, and we don't have the originals anymore. And that bothered him. Here's what he said. He said, "There is an obvious problem, however, with the claim that the Bible was verbally inspired down to its very words. As we learned at Moody in one of the first courses in the curriculum, we don't actually have the original writings of the New Testament. What well, we have are copies of these writings made years later, in most cases, many years later, Moreover, none of these copies is completely accurate, since the scribes who produced them inadvertently and or intentionally changed them in places. All scribes did that. So rather than actually having the inspired words of the autographs, the originals, what we have are the error-ridden copies of the autographs. We don't even have the originals. We don't even have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have is late. We have copies made much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And those copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. This is the claim. It's right out of the pages of uh, Jesus Interrupted. He said, basically the Bible began to appear to me as a very human book. Just as human scribes had copied and changed the text of scripture, so too had human authors originally written the text of scripture. This was a human book from beginning to end. Now, if that's the case, you can see why he would have no confidence in the book and why eventually he walked away from it. He continued to write though, continued to study. He is still a scholar, he debates nationally. He's very well written. I mean, he's, his books, he just released a book last year what do we do with this? What is he even talking about? We don't have the originals, but we have copies that are centuries later, and when we compare the copies we do have, they don't match. Is that true? Well, yeah, it is true. I'll show you on a page of the Gospel of John to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, and you would know this if you have an NASB Bible or an ESV, because those two Bibles have incredible uh, footnotes, so these verses I'm going to show you, they're footnoted. If you read the footnote in the margin, it'll say another manuscript says this or it doesn't exist in an early manuscript. It's going to give you the comparisons between. You probably were reading through your Bible all this time and never paid attention to that stuff. This is exactly what he's talking about. So here, for example, on the Gospel of John, this has been blown up four times larger than it actually is on the text, so what I'm about to show you is four times worse than this, because I can only show you one-fourth of the page. So here we go, here's one verse right here that is, under, under, uh, is contested. We have this version in your Bible, but there's another earlier manuscript that's different. This is the version that's in your Bible now. It says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. There's an early manuscript when compared to the early manuscript they used for this that says something different. It says this. It's missing the words, the bread. So what? Does that change the content? Does it change the meaning of this verse? No, and Bart will be the first to tell you that none of these contested verses will change the nature of Jesus or any orthodox belief you've ever held about Christianity. So I'm just going to tell you that up front. None of these variations will change what you believe as a Christian, but they are in the Bible. So what do we mean when we talk about inerrancy? Here's another one right next to it. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. There's an earlier, uh, another early version of this that says he instead of Jesus. I'm not shaken by that. Are you shaken by that? But it does bother me that theirs are in here, right? I mean, you kind of wonder, how do we decide? How did the the publisher of this Bible decide to put Jesus in instead of he? You realize that every Bible, somebody decided, we're going to put this in here. Well, why are they just doing that randomly? Are they just sticking stuff in there? I mean, how do we, well, no wonder nobody wants, no wonder Bart Ehrman doesn't think we should trust it. If we're just sticking a thing in there when it could be the alternative, why would we say it's that? Here's another one. Same page. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's another early version that says, not the Jews, but the Judeans. Of course, if the Judeans are Jews, it doesn't make much difference, does it? But I can see there's a difference. Here's another one. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also, also may see the works that you are doing. There's another early version that says... Brothers and sisters. But of course, the expression, the brothers, always meant the brothers, the sisters, and all the kids. So that doesn't really shake me either. But you can see there are some variations between ancient manuscripts. So why did the, the publisher of this Bible, the translators, decided to leave the and sisters out? Was that a random choice on their part? Here's another one. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. There's another early version that says, I am not yet going up to this feast. So far, this stuff is not shaking me. Is it bothering you guys? Just be honest. So far, not a big deal, but did you realize this stuff was in here? Here's another one. How is it this man is learning when he has never studied? Another early version says, knows his letters. So which is it? It means the same thing, by the way. But which is it? Here's another one. If anyone is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Another early version says his will instead of God's will. None of this stuff seems like it's a big deal to me, but I can certainly understand how if you were to stop and circle all of these variations, you'd have four times as many on a real page because it'd be four times bigger, Right? That then you could say something powerful like this. There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Students, do you get that? This is why you can't trust your Bible. There are more variations than there are words. I think that's rhetorically powerful, don't you? If you're in Bart's class, you can see why a certain percentage of the class would go, ooh, that's not good. Okay, so how do we we resolve this? Let's turn the page on this page. There's a couple more on the next page. Here's one. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Well, there's an early version that says, let him who believes in me drink, but I think if you look at the context of the passage, it really is the same thing. But here's a problem. Here's an entire paragraph that is contested. What do we do with this? This is a paragraph you guys actually like. This is the story of the adulterous woman. And Bart loves the fact that he can trot this out and show you how this passage he doesn't believe is biblical. And and take a look at this passage. You've probably heard his messages. You know this passage. This is the passage where Jesus has the woman brought to him as a committed adultery, thrown at his feet, yet the man is not thrown at his feet, just the woman. And then the accusers want him to stone her and he starts to draw something in the sand, remember? And then from the oldest to the youngest, the accusers eventually back off because they probably he's drawing all their sin and writing all their sin in the sand. If you've got no sin, be the first to cast a stone. You know this story. It's a powerful story. It's included in the Passion of the Christ, right? It's an important story. Is it biblical? Why is it contested? I'll tell you why it's contested. Because when you look at the earliest manuscripts we have of the gospel of John It's not there. What do you do with that? If you look at the first papyrus we have that has John's Gospel, it's Papyrus 66, 200 AD. It's not in there. The next earliest one we have is in the third century, is Papyrus 75, it's also missing from that. The first entire New Testament we have is Codex Sinaiticus. it's missing from that. Vaticanus is, is also missing, that's another fourth century document. Let's go into the fifth century manuscripts. The fifth century manuscripts of Alexandrinus, missing. Well, how about this one though, uh, no, missing. Well how about, nope, uh, that's missing also. Well, how about this one? Nope, that's missing also. In all of these manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we have of John's gospel, this passage is missing. Does that bother you guys? Be honest. Yeah, it bothers you guys. Be honest. It doesn't show up until the late 5th century in this one manuscript. And guess what? When it first shows up, it's not in John 6. It first shows up in John, I think, 21. Yeah. And then there are some other also early manuscripts about the same age as that manuscript called the Family 1 in 13 Greek manuscripts, where guess what? It's not even in John when it first shows up. It first shows up in the 5th century in the Gospel of Luke. This is why someone like Bart can say, Here you go. This is an entire passage that you guys thought was true that shouldn't be there. It's late it doesn't appear anywhere until the fifth century. 600 years after Jesus. Why would you trust it? He says it needs to be removed. He says that's not where it should stop though. How do I know what else needs to be removed? I think a lot more should probably be removed. You can't have confidence in any of this stuff and that's why he's, he walked out because he said I can't have confidence in any of it. Now that's the challenge I just presented to you. That's as bad as it's gonna get this morning, okay? But I want you to see the challenge so you can know what we're up against. My dad opened my eyes to what law enforcement was going to be, both positive and negative. I did the same thing for Jimmy, and it helped me to be successful. That's what we have to do here. Now, we're going to solve it by working this crime scene together, which is why we put this up here, okay? This ridiculously tight little crime scene with the little three-foot man, okay, who's in here. And you know, when you started, if you walk up here, and now I got, guess what? I have a guitar pick here now, Bobby. It came back, so I can give you yours back, okay, did? Thanks, man. All right, so if we were to do a crime scene and someone's actually get killed on this stage overnight, do you think we would come in and put a yellow tape this close to the body? No. So this is a stupid crime scene, I'm just gonna tell you right now, okay? It's not realistic. We're not gonna work it realistically. Do you think we actually draw masking tape outlines around the body? No, we don't do that. Do, we have use, do you think we use chalk? No. We don't do any of that. We just take good photographs. When the body gets pulled out of there, it gets pulled out of there. We don't need an outline. I got a photograph I can look at, right? But that's all TV stuff. At least our agency does not do that. But I did put an outline here for you and some evidence markers here. But in reality, the first thing we would do when doing a crime scene, and the reason why I'm going to share this crime scene with you is because this is exactly how we solve the problems in the manuscripts I just showed you. We use the exact same technique we use at a crime scene. So we get to a crime scene and right away I look at the crime scene and I go, ah, there's a bunch of stuff in there that's gonna be really valuable. It's gonna help me understand the truth. That's called evidence. There's also a bunch of stuff in here that's not gonna help me discover the truth because it shouldn't be in there or it's not important to the case. Those are called artifacts. I have to separate the artifacts from the evidence so I can get to the truth. That's what you have to do in Scripture. So here we get to this scene, and we go, oh, this is kind of tight. If I was really going to do this, this yellow tape would be at the parking lot. I want the entire building. I don't know what's in or what's out. For example, there's a guitar pick here. Magically reappeared from the first service. I got yours is there. It's not yours. But let's just say I didn't know if it was Bobby's. I might think this is related to the crime yet it's outside the scene. I can't have that kind of stuff. If I get there and the scene is too tight, the first thing I'm going to do is is enlarge the scene because that might be evidence. So I'm going to include this now. Now the scene gets bigger. The first principle of working crime scenes is you rope in everything. You're not even sure what's evidence yet. Include it. We'll take it out later. So for now, I'm going to call it evidence, right? I'm going to give it a marker. By the way, am I ever, as a detective, gonna walk inside yellow tape if I don't have to? No, but I will today, okay? But you don't walk inside a crime scene and say, okay, I'm gonna see what's going on in here. Let's see, let me see. I'm not gonna do that. I had done it before, like an idiot. My first case, I remember standing in the crime scene and my partner called me a profanity and said, look where you're standing, you idiot. And I look down, and I'm standing in the victim's blood, which presents a problem, right? Because how do you get out of the victim's blood? I can't be like, airlifted out. I have to walk out. And now I've got my bloody footprints in the crime scene, so I'm the killer. <laughs> so you have to not do that. I also learned something else really early on. You know, you come in, you're going to glove up or whatever you're going to do, and I you try to use as many tools as I can to help me not touch stuff. But one time I had all this stuff on, right? I get there and I'm I'm ready to go and I put all my gloves on and I'm like watching and I'm trying to be very professional. I'm thinking about who's watching me. My partners are watching me. I don't wanna look like an idiot, right? So I'm taking care, I'm being very careful. I, I put stuff on my shoes, little booties, you know? I put gloves on my hands and I'm ready to go. And then I get my kid out and I had like, I'm not gonna touch anything. I have my, I'm gonna I am so ready, right? And then I walked in like an idiot, I'm wearing a beige, I had this suit maybe about a week, a beige suit, and I walked in and I said, okay, hang on. And I stood up, and sure enough, I put my knee in the victim's blood, like an idiot, right? That's why you don't go in there, stay out here. You know why you stay out here as a detective? Because you can't look stupid if you don't go in there. That's why you stay out here. So what do I do to get the artifacts out? What are artifacts? That's the stuff that's in there that's not of evidential value. How do I get that stuff out? Well, there's a couple of techniques you use. One, you can simply ask, is there a difference in character so you know automatically it's not part of the crime? When I enter a scene like this, I'm usually the second guy in the scene. Paramedics have been here first. They've tried to save this guy. It didn't work out, so the paramedics left. And when they left, they destroyed my scene. Because there's half the blood smears are not from the fight, they're from the paramedic trying to save him. This trash here is not from the crime, it's just paramedic trash, okay? Every scene has paramedic trash in it. I know it doesn't belong in the scene, so even if you put a marker on some of this stuff, right? I know that this is not evidence, this is paramedic junk. So I can actually t- remove that. The scene is cleaner now without it, right? I can take it out, that's not evidence. It's got a different character. This is paramedic trash. This is paramedic trash. Of course, when I walk across the body to take this out, no. I hear some of you guys judging me already, okay? <laughs> so this stuff can come out, because it's not, now that scene is actually cleaner now, I've actually removed, here's one more. I can remove some of the junk. Now I've got less artifacts, more evidence, percentage-wise. Here's another one I can take out. Okay, paramedic stuff's out. Now how else do I do it? Well, I got to ask questions. So Bobby, is that your, he says, yeah, you know what? That is my guitar pick. It's probably been sitting there all week because i practice on this stage. I've got good reason by asking questions and looking for explanations. I now know I can take this out too. That's not evidence. Now the scene gets smaller. Oh, what's this cup here? I'll show you in a little bit how this works. Oh, somebody comes in and says, yeah, that's my cup. I saw the body. I was so shocked, I dropped the cup. Oh, I'm looking for a late entry. Anything that enters the scene late after the murder, like the paramedic stuff, if I can determine that it came in late, I can take it out. Yeah, that's my cup. And oh yeah, that's my phone too. Okay, those two have to come out. That's not evidence. Those are artifacts. Why do I know that? Because they came into the scene late. What else? Well, you look the differences in character. Here, for example, I've got this shirt, which I wouldn't be touching with my bare hands if it was a real shirt, okay? But look, there are some incisions in the shirt. They're different in terms of their nature and character. Some are evidence and some are artifacts. An incision like this, what is that going to be from? Maybe the knife that killed him, right? So that's got evidential value for me. I can actually determine the width of the blade from the incision. But how about this incision? The whole front of the shirt was cut in the middle, Who did that? Paramedics. The killer, more likely, did not go, hang on a second, you didn't do that. So this is just going to be from paramedics. So some of this has evidential value, some of it's an artifact. See how we separate the two? Character. We're looking for explanations. Here's another one we do. Sometimes we just ask a question, gosh, you know, so who's, who's, uh, um, let's say, whose money is this? Well, nobody can tell me especially in a cold case, years have gone by. Nobody can tell me. So should I include it or should I take it out? Is it evidence? I don't know. Some stuff you'll never know if it's artifacts or evidence. And you know what you do then? You leave it in. Does it really change anything? No, it's not going to affect the prosecution later or the defense later. It's It's got no impact. Take it in or leave it out, doesn't matter. So I leave it in. That's the exact, like, kill all the stuff. <laughs> this is exactly what we do with Scripture. The same process I just showed you at crime scenes is exactly what we do with Scripture. Let me show it to you. Let's go back to our screen here. Okay, golly. going to drive me crazy. All right, let's see if we can get our, there are artifacts in your Bible, and there is evidence in your Bible. How do the artifacts get in there? Well, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes somebody's copying something, make a one-letter Greek word change. You got a new entirely new word in the manuscript because it's been copied inaccurately. Sometimes, though, it's intentional. There are scribes who intentionally change stuff in the Bible. Did you know that? Let me show you how they changed it. Sometimes they're just trying to correspond an idea. Here's an example of that. Here's a verse in 1 John where it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are are one I don't know if you realize this or not it may not even be in your bibles it's already been removed from a lot of bibles but this last part of the verse is a late edition we know it's late because it's not in the earliest versions well what what's he trying to do there he's trying to insert a one verse definitive explanation of the trinity there's no doubt, if you this verse was there, we'd have no doubt about the triune nature of God. But do I need this verse to make a case for the triune nature of God? No, I never use this verse. I make a case for the triune nature of God with several passages that leave me no alternative, but I don't need that passage to do it. You could leave that in or take it out. You're still stuck with the Trinity. How about this one? Trying to complement two ideas. Someone added something here. After they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from their brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. This last part is not part of scripture, but somebody added it, why? Because we have good historical evidence that Silas did stay there. And this person who was scribing said, well, you know, Silas was here till he died, so he added this line. Does it change anything in Scripture? Does it change art? No, but you can see why they might add it. Here's one I like even better. This is an effort to clarify something that seems confusing. In this passage in John's Gospel, it says, There's by Jerusalem a sheep gate, a pool, which called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. What? The water moves? Why does it move? Well, it says so right here. An angel went down at a certain point into the pool and stirred up the water. The problem is that entire second part of the verse does not belong there. Why would somebody put it in there? Well, why does the water move? If this, is, this is well known in ancient history. We know why the water moves because an angel did. But these people wanted to make sure you knew why the water moved. So they added this line. So what do we do with this? Let's go to a real crime scene. This is a scene from the 80s. In our city where somebody was killed, we get there, there's a bunch of junk in the crime scene, so what do we do? Wouldn't it be great if I had a video camera that was there from the time of the murder and I could just stop the action and see what the scene looked like before people started to mess it up? I don't have that. I have to return to the original a different way. Interview the son. Yeah, when I saw my dad was dead on the driveway, it shocked me. I dropped that mug. That mug was mine. That's my glass. Okay, I can take that out now, so let's take it out. That's what the scene looked like when her son first got there. But wait a minute. It wasn't quite like that. Why? Because the paramedics came in after he called them, and they left all that trash. So this is really more what the scene looked like when the son first saw it. But not really, because that cigarette right there, believe it or not, that's some knucklehead police officer waiting for us to get there who smoked a cigarette. He doesn't feel good about it, but he did. We can take that out, too. So that's more like what the scene looked like when the guy first saw it. And that's what we're trying to do with scripture. Get out all the stuff that shouldn't be there so we can see what the scene looks like when you first saw it. This is an important principle. Returning to the original by many images. Let me give it to you this way. I have two sons, right? One is a cop and the other is in med school so he's always broke. My son Jimmy is a cop, he went to UCLA, I went to UCLA but my son David, he goes to USC, he's a communist. And, and, but he's broke, as are most communists. And, and he always has to ask the capitalists from UCLA for money. So I'm more than willing to help him out on occasion. Uh, I'll text him and I'll tell him I'll send him some money here. I want to send him $5,000. I'll even bring it to him. We'll meet at Starbucks uh, Wednesday, 4 p.m. on Main Street. I'll give you $5,000. But he can't tell what I mean because the five is all messed up. And so is the, the Starbucks says starving. I got some typos in there. So let me send him another message, better. Got the 5,000 you needed, Meet me, but now I got another error. Instead of saying Wednesday, I said weakness. So let me send him another one. Okay, got the f- now I'm calling him a nerd, so I've misspelled needed. So let's do another one. Not bad, only now I'm naked because I got streak instead of street. So let's go one more. Uh, now I'm not very confident because I'm kind of meek here instead of meat. Where is David gonna meet me next week? Where? Starbucks, what Starbucks? On Main Street, what time? For how much money? How can you be so sure? You don't have a single copy of my message that doesn't have an error in it. As a matter of fact, there are as many errors as there are words. Yet you think you can return to the original? How do you think you did that? You did that because it doesn't matter how many errors you have. It doesn't matter how many variations there are in the text. What matters is how many copies of the text do you have? You overcome the number of variations if you have enough copies to compare. And that's what we do. If I was really anal retentive about this, I would just blast the dog snot out of him, right? Send him a thousand texts. And everyone can have an error in a different place. It doesn't matter. He knows what I'm telling him. Why? Because he has this embarrassment of riches that we have in text manuscript evidence. There is no ancient event like the life and ministry of Jesus, recorded as many times in ancient literature as we have. There's no event like it anywhere by comparison. The number of copies we have is staggering. Just to create the Bible that's in your hands, we use a number. You can write these down. Here are the texts, the ancient manuscripts that we use to create your Bible. But you're gonna have to write fast because there's a lot of them. Why do we use so many? Why do they decide that that passage should be in your Bible? Because we have so many copies that we compare that we know now what should be there. Got it? Now, Bart doesn't want to tell you that. Bart does the first half of the work where he says, I see lots of problems, but he doesn't do the second half of the work is, I also know how to solve all those problems, He wants to stop halfway because that's alarming. But if you finish, you have great confidence. And we do it by doing the same things we do at crime scenes. The same way we remove artifacts. Why do you think you have all that extra stuff in your Bible? Because you include the biggest scene you can. And then you do all of that to get back to the original. Got it? And that's why this statement might sound powerful, but it's not. Let me go to this for a second. Why do we call this the inerrant word of God if we know that if you open it, there are variations between the manuscripts? If all these variations exist, why do we continue to call it inerrant? Because we make a claim as Christians, hear me on this. We claim that the original autograph written by Mark and Matthew and Luke and Paul, those are absolutely inerrant. The problem is we don't have those anymore. So now what we do is we have a method in place to return to the inerrant original reliably. Well, what did the inerrant say? I know what it said. You hold it in your hands because we can return to it reliably. But let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Here's a case, right, from the 80s again. A woman was killed, we, this is her uh, sister who survived and, and I got to know her pretty well, our family knows her pretty well. We're actually gonna go see her next week in Houston where she lives now. But her sister was killed back in the day and this is the coworker of the sister, it's the lady here in the bottom. Um, let me, uh, I'm gonna back this up, I'm gonna show you the video. You guys ready for the sound on this? I'll show you the video from Dateline. If you like Keith Morrison, you'll think he's funny. If you don't, the reason why I take a very visual approach to crime scenes, to me, it's all visual. It's all, what do I take out visually? Because my background is visual, right? I have a background in the visual arts. I was a design major, then I was an architect, and then I came to this job. And so everything I look at is by thinking to myself, well, what visually does not seem to fit? That helps me, and it helps solve these cases too.
0: The mystery was born on the night before Halloween. More than a quarter century ago, a young woman traded shifts with a friend of hers, went to work at a fast-food restaurant, never came home again. And for 25 years, her family wondered, who did this thing? Will justice ever be served? Then along came a detective who took a look at the pictures of the crime scene one more time, took a look at the evidence to see, is there anything here that can fit together? The difference between this particular detective and most people in the field was simply this. He had trained as an architect, and some things about the way we train make us see the world in a different way. It also happened to solve the mystery of what happened the night before Halloween.
1: Don't you love Keith Morrison? The night before Halloween. I think he puts an extra syllable on every word he speaks. Just Google Saturday Night Live Keith Morrison, you'll see some of the funniest skits. With the white hair thing going on. So anyway, but a lot of this was, this woman, she did trade shifts with with Robin. And when Robin was killed, Karen could not forgive herself because she felt like it was her fault. She was supposed to be working that night. And it, it really impacted the case. Here's why. When she got to work that day, right, she saw, this is the restaurant where she was working. She's standing right here. She's in the middle of this picture right here. And she was concerned as soon as she showed up that morning, because she knew she had swapped shifts with Robin, so Robin should have been home already. But Robin's car was still in the parking lot. So the minute she saw Robin's car, she suspected, "Uh uh-oh, something bad has happened. And she started playing the guilt game immediately. She was possessed by it. When she ran through this door, she walked into the kitchen, and she saw Robin's body on the floor, and her whole life changed. Now, a key question in the trial was, Karen, was that door locked? I need to know because was it the killer, somebody that Robin let in? Because the door would have been locked. That's the only way he could get in. Or was did the killer have a key? I just need to know. Was the door locked or unlocked? And you know, we asked her that question, and she got asked that question on the stand by the defense attorney, and she couldn't answer it. She actually answered it wrong. And so the minute she answered it wrong, the defense attorney started making point of it you can't trust her for anything then you can't trust her for anything she says because she's wrong about the door now that was a problem for us because we needed this witness but the jury later on told us no we knew that she was reliable even though she was wrong about the door let me play devil's advocate with you do you realize that witnesses can be reliable even when they're wrong did you know that they can still be trusted for facts the question is why is this different? Why is she missing? We have a jury instruction for this. Let me show it to you, okay? It should give you some confidence about Scripture. What do we talk about when we talk about reliable eyewitnesses? It says, do not automatically reject testimony just because of inconsistencies or conflicts. Consider whether the differences are important or not. People sometimes honestly forget things or make mistakes about what they remember. Also, two people may witness the same event yet see or hear it differently. Wow! How many Gospels do we have? Four. They're slightly different, right? Why? Can't trust them. They're slightly different. No, you can trust them because they're slightly different. Because that's what reliable eyewitness accounts look like. Even if she's wrong, she can be reliable about everything else. I don't even think, I'm here to tell you, I'm not claiming Scripture's wrong. I'm being plain devil's advocate. Bart, if you think it's wrong on a certain point, that still does not give you permission to throw it all out. You couldn't do that in a jury trial. So Bart, let's just do it this way. If I had a puzzle, all this junk in my drawer and I'm trying to figure out I want to build the puzzle, I would know not to in, try to include the gum in the puzzle. It's a different character. It doesn't fit. I know there are some things in that drawer that are not part, they're artifacts. They're not evidence. So when I assemble the puzzle, even if I got missing pieces, it doesn't hurt me. Even if I, the whole puzzle's done, right? Let's finish it together. Oh, there's some missing pieces does that really matter? Who's in the puzzle? That's Jesus. Oh, I don't know. It could be Satan. I mean, think about it. He could have a demon on his shoulder right there. There's a piece of the puzzle missing right there. That could be where the demon was. These could have been horns sticking out of his head right there. They're missing. Really? Let's be reasonable about this. Look at it this way. If you want to fight with Bart, here's how I would do it. Bart, so you're telling me, okay, I'll take out every verse where you say there's a little uh, variation. I'll take out the whole verse. Do you think you lose Jesus? Do you think you lose the truth? By taking out, you're not even saying to take out every verse. I'll just do it. Tell you what, Bart, I will take out every fourth verse. I'll take out 25% for you. How's that? He would never claim that 25% of the Bible is unreliable. But I'll just say it is, for the sake of art. No, better than that. Let's take out every other verse. Okay, Bart? That'll satisfy you, right? You would never claim that, but I'm willing to give you, you can pick odd or even verses, wherever you want. We'll just take and throw the rest out. Okay, now that we've done that, do you think you lost your Jesus? Do you think you lost the truth? No, you haven't, Bart. Here's why. The verses I removed... Most of them are going to come back because there's a parallel passage in some other gospel that they didn't re- get removed from. So all of those verses get to come back in. So if I'm in, if I'm in Matthew and I've redacted 50%, but the 50% is still in Luke's gospel, it gets to come back in. And if I just interviewed the disciples who were the students of John, let's say, Ignatius, Papias, and Polycarp, and said, hey guys, have you written about what John taught you? Yes, they did. Well, if I read your writings about what John taught you from his gospel, and I just inserted that information back in the missing gospels, now you're back to everything. Everything you've ever thought about Jesus, even if you tossed out 50%, you're stuck with it. Bart is not saying 50% should be thrown out, but even if you did that, you're stuck with the truth. You don't lose it. So why are we playing this game? You're nitpicking about these verses. I'm willing to throw out 10 times more than you would ever throw out, but you're still stuck with the truth. So what are we doing here? He's got a different agenda. In the end, all of the stuff is going to come back in. You're stuck with the same Jesus you've always known. Now, we started with this, this guy. We're going to end with him. He's got amazing pedigree, if you think about it, which is why I think he is so influential. I mean, just look at him. All that stuff in his background, he's the department chair at University of North Carolina. But he learned from a master who he would tell you also was his superior. His mentor was Bruce Metzger. He learned his stuff from Bruce. Now the question is, well is Bruce's pedigree a little bit different? Uh, Yeah, everything was done at Princeton. He's a member of every important biblical society that ever was. He's written far more academic volumes, and he is a believer, an ordained pastor. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So it was like, they're both standing here at the crime scene, Bruce and Bart. Are they looking at two different scenes? No. The evidence inside the scene is exactly the same for Bruce as it is for Bart. Do you hear what I just said? There's nothing different. It's not that Bart discovered something that was unknown to Bruce, because he didn't. They're looking at the exact same evidence, yet Bart's out. Bruce is like, no, I'm in. So it's not about the evidence, folks. It's not about that at all. It's about something different. Here's what he said before he passed away in the late 90s. I've asked questions all my life. I've dug into the text. I've studied this thoroughly. And today I know with confidence that my trust in Jesus has been well placed. Very well placed. Same evidence, two different scholars, one who comes to this conclusion. Something is preceding Bart before he looks at the evidence. Now, you might wonder, I left you kind of hanging on the uh, adulterous woman passage, didn't I? So, there's lots of work being done on this passage, and there's a guy named Dan Wallace, who I am not related to, and he has an Institute for New Testament Manuscripts in Dallas. He actually travels the world and photographs the most ancient manuscripts, so they won't be lost. And you can actually view them online for free at his website. And he has debated Bart Ehrman twice and his colleagues there at this institute have studied that passage. Here's what they believe. They make a case for it from Scripture. They believe the, the Greek used in the adulterous woman passage is actually from Luke and is a part of Luke's larger collection of material that he, Luke even says in the first chapter, he didn't use everything he collected. And so he, even John says, there are so many more stories I could tell you that the whole world would be filled with books, right? So it's part of the Lucan tradition that gets inserted in the fifth century, so that's how he accounts for the adulterous woman passage. And you can read the entire case he makes online by just Googling Dan Wallace, adulterous woman. What a terrible combination, huh? But you will get to this passage, okay? Now before I leave you, let me just say one thing to you, okay? I, here's my concern. I didn't say this in the first service, but I do say it once in a while. I do a lot of conferences, apologetics conferences where Christians come and we talk about these issues and we talk about the evidence for Christianity. And I tell people afterwards, you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried that Christian conferences, and I'll be honest with you, I'm worried that Christian church services have just really become another form of Christian entertainment. Do you hear what I'm saying? In other words, you go to a conference or a service like this, and you, know, you go to see Risen, it's a good movie, it'll inspire you and encourage you, then you'll go home from the movie and you'll be no different on the backside of the movie than you were when you went. You just maybe walk a little lighter that day, you feel good about it that day, but are you really acting, living, behaving any differently than you were before you saw Risen? Is that what happens when you come to church? You come to church, it's another two hour form of entertainment, you could go to the movies, you could stay home and watch a movie, but you come here, you come out, you're encouraged, But are you allowing this to change you? Are you committed to the kind of change that's necessary to live differently? Is that what this has become? Is that what all of this stuff is? Just another form of Christian entertainment? It can't be that, folks, it can't be that. I I, I have no desire in in entertaining. I don't want this to be Christian entertainment. I want us to get off our butt and do something with the truth. I'm serious. I I told this to to these guys, I I travel so much that I am spent, I am on fumes, I'm empty. But I will tell you something, why do we continue to do it? Because we wanna see the ship we call the church with the big C, we wanna see it make a, a one degree change so that you can tell me why this is true with something more than just your personal experience. I need you to show me why it's true. And if you don't think it's important, you don't have a student in your life. You don't know anyone who you love between 15 and 30. But if you know someone between 15 and 30, then you know why this is important. We have to be able to make the case for our young people. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are going to do something wonderful here and you are doing something amazing here with a group that's so far ahead of other churches in our country that it's like light years of difference. But Father, I just want to ask you to take Green Bay Community Church and to do something to finish this great work by having the people in this room feel so compelled, feel so convicted about what it is that is true that they want to make the case wherever they go. They want to Make the case this week. Would you bring someone into the lives of everyone in this room this week who has a great question that they need to answer? Challenge us, Father, so we can continue to take steps toward becoming the kind of children you will smile about. We love you, and we want to do this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.